Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and were two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses H.P. Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one's going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are covering the story, A Psychical Invasion. This is the first Dr. John Silence story by Algernon Blackwood. It was published in 1908. Yeah, this one is a novella. We did promise that we would get some of those on the ballot. And so here we are. And what this means is that we're going to devote two episodes to this story, as we've done with novellas in the past. So this episode is going to be the recap. And then we'll be back in two weeks with a discussion episode. Yeah, even though this is a really long story with a lot of major elements, I don't think the recap is going to take too much longer than a typical re recap because there's uh, a whole action scene in the middle that can only be, can be summed up in a few words. I don't want to ruin the surprise, but we're going to get to it and talk about that <laughs> a little bit. I can't wait. This is a fantastic 
story that introduces a new sort of iconic uh, detective hero. He's really an occult detective and doctor. And there are a lot of interesting critiques of society and also great examples of writing craft that we're all going to dig into in this story in the discussion episode. But first, we have to do the recap. So, Glenn, what is going on with A Psychical Invasion? Right. So as you said, Brandon, this novella is the first of several stories that Blackwood wrote about his occult detective, Dr. John Silence, or really just Dr. Silence, as he's referred to most often here in the story. That is an amazing name. I wish it was my name. I might tell new people I meet that it is my name because, you know, how will they know? And because it's the first of these stories, we're going to get quite a bit of description of Dr. Silence and also something of his backstory as well. But that is not actually how Blackwood begins this story, which is, you know, that's just good storytelling. So instead, we begin in the middle of the action, or, you know, at least what passes for action in Edwardian literature, which is to say, in the middle of a conversation. And what we get here is a stock scene from detective stories, the detective interviewing a prospective client in his office. In this case, the client is a Swedish woman. We're in London, by the way. So his client is a Swedish woman, and she is worried about a man she knows. But Blackwood doesn't give us the particulars of this potential case, at least not just yet. I mean, we are going to get them, but it's all kind of a tease here, right? He's, he's teasing us with some some vague statements that let us know that this is not a regular detective story, but in fact is an occult detective story. And the word occult even appears here. Though it turns out that Dr. Silence doesn't actually like that term very much. But just as soon as we get these hints as to the type of story that we are in, Blackwood takes it all away without presenting the case to us. And instead, he launches into some description and some backstory about Dr. Silence. And I have to say that I think that all of this is a great narrative trick because he's introduced two things that we as readers are going to be interested in and then is kind of taking them away and giving them to us in, in sort of bits and spurts. This is an excellent technique that Blackwood is using here. And it works so well, as you said, Glenn, because he has so much work to do, creating a new character, getting the audience interested in him, and getting the audience interested in the case that he's going to investigate. Why should we care about either this detective or the cases he takes? And so the opening part of the story is just expertly paced. You are learning something new on every page in almost every paragraph, and it's just fantastic. I do want to take a moment and comment on the name John Silence here. Uh, <laughs> what comes to mind when I hear the name is uh, actually the pseudonym that Soren Kierkegaard used when writing Fear and Trembling, which is Johannes de Silentio. And, and for people who don't know, Kierkegaard was uh, an 18th century uh, philosopher and theological philosopher on a lot of levels. He is sometimes referred to as the grandfather of existentialism. And this book, Fear and Trembling, is caught up with ethical actions and ethical concerns. But to say that Kierkegaard wrote it would mean that that one would engage with Kierkegaard's philosophy as though it was some sort of uniform, systematic thing. Uh, what Kierkegaard did with his philosophical writings was use pseudonyms to explore different positions uh, and then often write an editor's note like, yeah, I found I found this uh, text by Johannes de Salentio and I'm submitting it to the publisher on his behalf and just a classic <laughs> kind of weird fiction trick, I suppose. Um, but, you know, Johannes de Salentio just means John of the Silence. And, and I have to think that Algernon Blackwood has gotten the name from this. So while I didn't really see any overt references to fear and trembling in the story, I saw references to another uh, major Kierkegaard work, and, and we'll talk about that. I think Blackwood definitely cribbed the name here and anglicized it. Yeah, that has to be true. I mean, and this story is actually overwhelmingly concerned with what I would describe as an ethical action here. And we're going to get that in the, the backstory and the description of who Dr. Silence is. So let's let's continue on. Let's learn about him. His friends regard him as an eccentric because he's rich, but even though he is rich, he's chosen to take on a profession, but he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to work for a living, but he's working anyway, and that's a crazy eccentric thing to do. Specifically, he's a doctor, and this really just befuddles his friends. And, and Blackwood describes this this way. He writes, "...that a man of independent means should devote time to doctoring, chiefly doctoring folk who could not pay, past their comprehension entirely." The native nobility of a soul whose first desire was to help those who could not help themselves puzzled them. After that, it irritated them, and greatly to his own satisfaction, they left him to his own devices. And so what this amounts to is a wealthy man devoting his labor, if not necessarily his wealth, to caring for the less fortunate 
and being regarded as a kind of weirdo for it. And we have an important model for this in Christian history. That is St. Francis of Assisi. And I want to keep that in mind as we go. I guess we're keeping Kierkegaard in mind as we go as well. I suspect that both of these things are going to be a big topic of discussion in the next episode. But in this case, it's not the poor who Dr. Silence is helping. It's really the middle class because there are, in fact, institutions that exist to help the poor here in Edwardian England. These are mostly uh, Christian charities. But in a world without health insurance or without a state-run system of medical care, middle-class people don't have good access to, to any kind of medical attention, any kind of medical care, whether that's physical medical care or, you know, in this case, occult medical care. And again, Blackwood just has a great line about this. Here's what he says. A very large class of ill-paid, self-respecting workers could not afford the price of a week's comforts merely to be told to travel. And, and this line, I hear, I'm, I'm just really reminded of the setup of the Sheridan Le Fanu haunted house story that we did a few months ago, and we're going to be reminded of it again shortly. Uh, there's something else that interests me here in this this setup. Blackwood is clearly making a sarcastic comment about how healthcare works in Edwardian England, but he also recognizes that doctors are themselves working people, people who have to charge patients in order to get food and shelter and so on. And so Dr. Silence is also concerned about how delivering medical services for free might actually destabilize the marketplace for such services. And so he only ever takes on patients who actually cannot pay, patients for whom the choice is Dr. Silence or no doctor, not Dr. Silence or some other doctor they would actually have to pay. And so this way he doesn't actually drive anyone out of business. And of course, all of this is to make sure that Dr. Silence is a sympathetic character to Blackwood's audience who, of course, would largely be middle-class professionals. And Dr. Silence has really also cornered a market of medicine that most people largely ignore. Uh, he knows that there's now doctors for mental health with the rise of psychoanalysis in you know Vienna. That's only probably about 50 years old at the time he's writing the story, maybe 40 years old. So that's a new discipline in medicine or in professional care for uh, people's well-being and health. And doctors, medical doctors, typically are dealing with physical ailments and maladies and things of that nature. And so in this story, we get this dichotomy between the mental, the physical, and then the spiritual. And why Dr. Silence doesn't like the word occult is because of its negative connotation, speaking to like voodoo magic or something like that, though Blackwood never uses those words. You get the sense of, you know, it's like, you know, chicken feet and casting bones <laughs> and things like that. But what Blackwood is really doing with Dr. Silence is saying that there's an erosion of uh, spiritual life uh, and a narrowing of people's ability to move through their lives with spiritual health, maybe particularly in the middle class who uh, don't have the means of leisure of the wealthy to sit and reflect and contemplate such things and don't have the expressions of Christian love that the poor can engage in. And so the middle class is just this kind of weird place in an economy and in a community that is sort of overlooked at crucial needs that other people are able to get. And I think that that is what Blackwood is also exploring here as well. Though, as you said, this is a British story. And as you are always quick to point out, there are real class and economic concerns here as well. Yeah. And it's amazing how much Blackwood is concerned with making sure that he's covered all of his bases here for his audience. And, you know, this is only the second Blackwood story that we've done on the show, which is in itself, I think, a pretty remarkable thing since I love Blackwood. I guess I've kind of been restraining myself. I've been kind of fighting against my own impulses to make this the Algernon Blackwood podcast, maybe, maybe going too far in the, the opposite direction there. But, you know, in the Insanity of Jones, which was a story that we both really enjoyed. And in fact, we're going to revisit that story later this year uh, on the show with uh, uh, from the perspective of of mental health. And even thinking about Jones in that story, he's one of the people that Blackwood has in mind here. He is this professional middle class, this working middle class. You know, he can he has skills, he has a job, he can make rent, he can buy groceries. He doesn't actually buy groceries, though. Of course, that's what the story is about, and can have you know decent clothes, but can't necessarily hand over five hundred bucks, you know, to a doctor. Right? Doesn't have that kind of disposable income, and there's no in insurance. 
And that story is all about how this guy actually needs some attention. He needs to be talking to a therapist that if he could have gone to somebody, in fact, if Dr. Silence had found him, if he had gone to Dr. Silence, right, the whole tragedy of the, the workplace gun violence at the end of that story could have been prevented. And it's it's hard not to see the two things working in tandem here, that, that Blackwood is writing these different stories that are all approaching this same problem of the the stresses the anxieties of the middle class here in industrial capitalism and how there are no safety mechanisms for them at all. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, we're going to read more Blackwood stories as we go. So that's something that I'm going to want to be tracking. And it's not really what I would have thought of as being one of Blackwood's main themes before we started this podcast. So it's awesome that we're, we're seeing that here. Well, at this point, we are actually only a page into this story still. Uh, we're also still only halfway through the description of Dr. Silence. So now that we know all about his station in life, uh, something, of course, that would have mattered a great deal to a contemporary audience, let's talk about his occult training. We've already said that Silence doesn't like that word, and it's it's not really the word, actually, that people use for him. Most people think of him as a psychic doctor, but this is a use of the word psychic that just doesn't seem quite right to to use you know, for us now. And here, it just means supernatural, really. He's a, a supernatural doctor. I would watch that TV show. Actually, I have watched that TV show. I've watched <laughs> a lot of versions of that TV show. And to become a supernatural doctor or, you know, or an occult detective, if you will, and I think I will, uh, he had to undergo a long and severe training. This was physical, it was mental, and it was spiritual. And Blackwood has another awesome line about this as well. Here's, here's what he says. This is kind of a longer passage here. What precisely this training had been or where undergone, no one seemed to know, for he never spoke of it. But the fact that it had involved a total disappearance from the world for five years, and that after he returned and began his singular practice, no one ever dreamed of applying to him the so easily acquired epithet of quack spoke much for the seriousness of his strange quest and also for the genuineness of his attainments. So, you know, unpacking this a little bit, what's going on here is that in order to fight the forces of evil and to, to help the less fortunate or, you know, help the helpless, if we're thinking of Angel here, uh, Silence had to disappear for five years to receive special secret training. So basically, this is the same origin story as Batman, right? He's a rich guy who wants to help the helpless, uh, has to go away to Asia for five years to be trained. He's Batman. This is the first Batman story. Yeah, that's right. It's also not the first Batman story. I would say the Scarlet Pimpernel is really the first Batman story, but it is it is the first story I've read whose like distinct Batman origins you can see in it. I mean, just apart from like the rich person who's magnanimous and generous and charitable and who's helping people out of tough situations. Yeah, this is this is great. I love this bit about the disappearance from the world for five years. Obviously, he went to Asia. I don't know why we assume that. Maybe it's just early 20th century literature <laughs> that we make that assumption. But um, yeah, you just have to wonder like where you hear about where he would have heard about these weird doctors who were able to treat these metaphysical and spiritual ailments. It's great. There's a whole story there that's untold and maybe will never be told by <laughs> Algernon Blackwood. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think that we ever get this from Blackwood himself, but if, if no one else has done it, I am feeling right now extremely motivated to go write a story called Silence Begins, right? It's an origin <laughs> story. <laughs> well, there are two more things that we should say about the backstory before we actually get into the plot of this present case that we're all here for. Uh, the first is that Dr. Silence is not a mystery or a magician. He is a genuine doctor. All the, the numinous, all the, the psychic, all the supernatural phenomena that people observe have perfectly rational explanations. Uh, this is precisely the sort of thing that we saw with Karnacki, the ghost finder, who, of course, is a contemporary of silence. Right? Those stories came out really only two or three years after these. Uh, the second thing to say is that the story is told in the third person, except for a brief moment here, right, just, just right here in this backstory business, when we get the weird intrusion of a narrator who explains to us how he knows all this stuff. I guess this is Silence's, you know, Watson to his homes, but we don't really find out anything more about this narrator in the story. I don't know if we ever do in any of the later stories either. And the narrator doesn't really intrude ever again in the story. This is a really strange move here. I found this to be really odd as well. 
it's obvious that Blackwood is relying on you know detective fiction tropes that existed at the time of, of his writing this story. And it's also clear that he's finding his way to telling these types of stories the way that he wants to. He's finding his voice. So he kind of here mixes up a third-person omniscient narrator with a third-person close narrator. And these techniques this kind of mishmash of techniques work for the most part. Um, but I hope he'll either get away from their narrative intrusions in later stories or find a way to make them more meaningful to this story. As we'll see, you know, silence really doesn't use people for assistance. So we don't even have a good sense of who is, you know, interlocutor or confidant is that he's telling this story to after the fact. Um, it's a little, it's a little muddled, but it doesn't really get in the way of the momentum of this story. We, we've already talked a little bit about Silence's training as well, and, and uh, you know, Silence Begins, which, uh, you know, <laughs> somebody's going to write that someday. It's great. But but the real function of that is to convince the readers that among his peers, John Silence is considered a consummate professional, and you, and you said, you know, he's not considered a quack. But we're also told that there are quacks in Silence's field and grifters and con artists. He's just not one of them. Um, and I th- and I think it's also meant to indicate that Silence didn't travel to Vienna and train in psychoanalysis or any conventional mode of medicine or new discipline, as we've brought up before. But he's really focused on that third category of health, which is which is bringing balance to the imbalance of people's spiritual and, and supernatural uh, worlds. I think if this story were being written today, we'd see references to, you know, the new age and holistic medicine. You know, I, I'm convinced, you know, when we get to the haunted house in the story, that if this were written today, the first thing that Dr. Silence would do would go in and, and rearrange the furniture so it's feng shui and <laughs> everything would be fine. Um, so it's another way that Blackwood is emphasizing that the things we need to be concerned about with people's health with people's health is not just bifurcating their mental well-being and physical well-being. There is this mysterious third category that has to do with the way uh, our consciousness encounters the world. And as I said here, silence is pretty critical of these other systems that maybe the con artists and grifters and, and quacks in his fields use, systems like divination or, or geoman- geomancy. Um, but he's really learned how to think in such a way that he no longer relies on these systematic approaches to the psychic or spiritual world. And to me, this is really a sort of break in the convention of detective fiction, because what Blackwood is telling us is that John Silence doesn't really have a method in the same way that Sherlock Holmes does. You can't imitate what Dr. John Silence does unless you have his temperament. His temperament and his characterization are his method. And I think that is a a really brilliant and and special break of the convention of detective fiction. I really loved that about this story. It's hard not to see John Silence and, and maybe this story specifically as being almost a reaction against Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes is a contemporary here, right? This is really right the exact same time that we get The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is late for Sherlock Holmes, but Arthur Conan Doyle is still around and is still writing. And we can even just think about the temperaments, the the relationships that Doyle versus Blackwood have actually with the occult and with the understanding of sort of numinous supernatural stuff in the world. I think that's probably something we'll talk about in the, the discussion as well. That'll be a lot of fun. This is just, this is a story that is so rich already. We're still only on like the second page, but we can now uh, get back to the plot, back to this case. And so let's, let's go ahead and rejoin the conversation between Dr. Silence and Mrs. Sivinson. The man in question is Felix Pender, who is a, a young author of humorous stories. So I, I think we're probably supposed to envision here someone like P.G. Woodhouse or, or, or Jerome Jerome, you know, this sort of whole Edwardian sort of comedy of manners type of, of, of writing. And while Felix Pender has had some success as a writer, he's not a man of independent means who's writing for fun. He, he has to write for a living. Uh, and even with success, is still only able to afford a tiny house on the outskirts of London. London in Putney. And, you know, he has to write a lot, right? This is someone who has to be churning out stories and churning out novels. And the problem is, the case is that he can no longer write a a single line with any humor or any joy in it. And Mrs. Sivinson describes him as haunted by something. 
Of course, he's afraid to go to a doctor because a doctor will probably pronounce him insane and a lost sense of humor anyway is not generally recognized as a medical problem. So, you know, high risk, low chance of any reward for going to an actual doctor. And we, we should say that, that Pender doesn't know that Mrs. Sivenson is here. She's actually friends with, with Pender's wife, it, it turns out. And this case interests Silencer. I mean, you know, that's obvious. It wouldn't be in the story. It wouldn't be the story that we're telling. And so the next step here is going to be to head out to Pender's house and, and see what's up. When Silence arrives, Felix Pender's not there. And so he interviews Mrs. Pender alone first. This, again, this is a great narrative technique because it gives us an external description of the haunting of Felix Pender before we get it from his perspective. And I have to say that I think Blackwood does an amazing job of characterizing Mrs. Pender as someone who is terrified for her husband rather than for herself. And that really lets us as as the readers, as the audience, feel terrified for him, too. I mean, it, far better than if we only had his story, which, you know, we will get as well. But I loved this technique that Blackwood uses here. So whatever the inciting incident was, though, she doesn't actually know. It, it happened while she was in Ireland over the summer. So again, another great narrative technique where we're going to get like half of the haunting and are going to be itching to know how it started. What is the origin story here? Blackwood is just a master of making this a page turner. So here's what she says. When she got home from her vacation in Ireland, her husband had changed his workroom from the library to the sitting room because, at least as he said, his characters became wrong and terrible in the library. And so instead of writing comedies, he was inadvertently writing tragedies. Vile, debased tragedies. The tragedies of broken souls, is how he puts it. But the change in venue doesn't actually help matters, and so now he's back in the library. But that's not even really the worst of it. Felix Pender, living at home, he, he acts as if someone invisible is in the house with them. And, and this stuff this stuff is actually pretty frightening here in the, the way Blackwood describes it. So Pender sometimes makes room for someone on the stairs, some invisible person. He puts out furniture for this invisible person to sit on. And there's even been a few times that his wife has seen him running through the house as if someone is chasing him. But of course, there's no one there. And this is all we get from Mrs. Pender, because her husband comes home right in the middle of the story. Again, another great narrative technique that keeps us wanting more, that keeps us feeling suspense while we're reading this. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. All of this is pretty horrifying. But what I loved about this section is the way we get as readers to see Silence demonstrate demonstrate his empathy and his quiet caring of others. It's really on full display here. Uh, I love how Blackwood just is able to characterize John Silence throughout this whole story. We did see earlier when Dr. Silence was talking to the Swedish woman, I could call her Mrs. Sivinson, but I prefer just to call her the <laughs> Swedish woman, uh, that he, he likes to draw his own conclusions. He doesn't like it when people leap ahead to offer their own deductions before they've given him any facts. So we saw this during his interview with the Swedish woman. And he still listens with compassion, even though that's the case. And Mrs. Pender kind of does the same thing. And and I think Blackwood has done another bit of great characterization with Mrs. Pender. She really is a lovely character. We learn a little bit about her love for her husband and, and her devotion to him uh, from Mrs. Sivenson, from the Swedish woman. Um, but it's really shown to us when John Silence is interviewing her. You know, she's not at all concerned about the loss of income or what will happen to them. Uh, she just wants her husband to be okay again. And I think this is really lovely scene. And again, it just pulls the reader in as much as it makes John Silence want to help these people because they are good people. They love one another. And that's clear. And it's also clear that Mr. Pender uh, loves his wife as well and is very concerned about what his inability to write good stories, what his inability to be of good humor and in good spirits again is doing to his marriage and his, and his wife. Blackwood doesn't do as much characterization with uh, Felix Pender as he does with Mrs. Pender here. And that's because Mrs. Pender is really only in this one scene. And I, I just think it's great. And I wanted to point that out. There, there was also something that struck me more about characterization here about how John Silence comes off to his clients. Silence could easily come off as aloof or even snobbish to his middle-class clients here, to the Penders. And they are so grateful 
and they express appreciation for his coming out to the house and taking up their case. And, you know, he initially sort of brushes it off. He's a little maybe uncomfortable with the praise. And he tells them that he only takes cases that interest him. But then he goes on to say that doing this sort of work is his hobby and it's his privilege. And it's a great sort of humble response to their gratitude. And it puts everyone at ease. And it just tells us, again, the reader, that John Silence is a man who is able to help people. So he does. And I just think it's fantastic. I really loved this whole scene. I'm glad you pointed out how sympathetic she is, and in part because of how she exists as a, as a partner to her husband and vice versa, because we don't really actually see them together at all. But even though that's the case, we actually leave this story feeling as if we've spent a lot of time with them as a couple, and we care very much about them as a couple because they care so much about each other. It's amazing that Blackwood is able to show us that almost without actually showing us that. That's some really masterful storytelling there. But- It is time now, I think, to get Felix Pender's story. And he begins haltingly. You have to exchange some pleasantries first. And Silence even takes Pender's hand as if he's checking his pulse. But what he's really doing here is getting a sense of Pender's mental condition, is, is how Blackwood puts it here. And when he does this, he's able to know in some kind of maybe mystical way that all of this started when Pender used some sort of drug. And what he senses is that certain portions of Pender's atmosphere are vibrating faster than others. Here's here's what he says about this. If the higher rate of vibration spreads all over, you will become permanently cognizant of a much larger world than the one you know normally. All perception, as you know, is the result of vibrations, and clairvoyance simply means becoming sensitive to an increased scale of vibrations. The awakening of the inner senses we hear so much about means no more than that. And this line, this line really jumped out to me because this is basically the same idea that we had in Lovecraft's story from beyond, which we did live at PhilCon just a a few months ago. And in fact, we even altered our whole release schedule to release that as our previous episode so that we can be keeping that in mind and actually make that a big feature of our discussion episode next. So I'm excited to see what people think about that connection on the forum. Yeah, I'm excited to see what people think about this connection on the forum. And we will be discussing the connection between these two stories from beyond and a psychical invasion in the discussion episode and the Karnacki story as well to see how this type of genre can split in in multiple directions. Um, This whole section is really great. We're going to learn more about what is going on with Pender. But basically, he took some drugs while his wife was out of town and had a, had a bad <laughs> go of it. And and we have to wonder at this point, and it's confirmed in this story, but not yet. At this point in the story, we have to wonder if at least part of Silence's training included taking a bunch of drugs in some exotic location somewhere under the, you know, mastery and guidance of some of some uh you know supernatural guide of some kind and and it's pretty great um and yeah yes as we've said there's definitely the connection here with uh from beyond and it makes me wonder if lovecraft used a machine in his story because blackwood used drugs here if if lovecraft's story isn't just a direct response to this one Right. And that's the conversation we've been having on the the forum for a long time. I mean, even when we had just released this as an early access episode to our Patreon supporters, that was a big part of the discussion on the the Patreon forum. There was why the machine versus drugs. And yeah, I mean, I have have to assume that Lovecraft has read this story and he's making the twist. In fact, probably wanted readers to know this story, to know that he was making a twist. But we'll, we'll take that up at more length in the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to talk about the idea of clairvoyance here. We're going to have a question about clairvoyance and and metaphysics in our discussion episode as well. Just want to highlight it here. Uh, It's interesting to me that the idea of clairvoyance is simply the ability to perceive vibrations beyond which humans are typically able to see. In a little bit, we're going to see Blackwood engaging with ideas of the distortions of time and space, uh, the subjectivity of time, things like that. And this idea of everything being the result of vibrations is really a kind of uh, string theory. I mean, so Blackwood is really ahead of Einstein and Feynman here. And and we'll get more, as I said, of Blackwood dealing with general theory of relativity. But, uh, you know, I'm no expert on these things. I'm not even a lay expert. 
but he's clearly doing a little bit of literary physics, which might be one of my favorite genres of literature of all time. <laughs> well, that's another connection to Karnacki, the ghost finder as well, or at least the haunted Jarvie, which we've read. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's get back to the prognosis here. And, and by the way, we, we should say that the drug in question here is cannabis indica uh, marijuana, basically, right? Though he takes this as a, a liquid extract rather than than smoking it. And silence is not all that worried about Pender's condition. They're just going to have to get his vibration rate back to normal. I mean, you know, if he can't get it back to normal, then he's going to suffer eternally in the spiritual existence. We all go to after the death of our bodies. Uh, but, you know, silence knows how to deal with that. Like, that's not actually a problem for him. That's just a question of knowing how to deal with it. And he does know how to deal with it. And so what's really going on here, what's really going to be the plot of the story is that the problem is not just that Pender has altered his physical vibrations, there is also the matter that there is something in the house that he is now sensitive to. And so we need to hear his story, hear the rest of his story in order to diagnose that problem. The reason Pender decided to use cannabis in the first place is that he had heard it induced a certain type of laughter. And as a professional humorist, he wanted to experience that type of laughter. But no laughter came, only a great weariness. He gave up, he went to bed. And then he woke up in the middle of the night, convulsing with laughter. But he, he felt certain, though, that he hadn't woken up on his own, that he'd been woken by someone else, someone he'd been dreaming about, maybe, he thinks, uh, an evil woman who took pleasure in her evilness. And now that he's awake here in the middle of the night, he just can't stop laughing and he even stuffs a rag in his mouth to keep himself quiet and i have to say this is maybe almost kind of another batman parallel here this is like he's a victim of a joker attack here and in this moment pender wanted to get downstairs to his study but something went really wonky on him with his impression of time and he could barely move but when he finally made it and turned on a light the laughter just suddenly left him and was replaced by pure terror but then it came back. He, he saw everything suddenly as ludicrous and couldn't help but laugh at it all. And this he, he recognizes, or at least believes, is the, the true effect of the drug, uh, not the laughter that he had before. But the, the terror that he's experiencing as well is still with him. And he thinks that this is an invasion of his soul. This is the, the psychical invasion of the story's title. It's an, an invasion of his soul by the evil woman who had woken him. And so that is the, the drug experience that serves as the inciting incident for this backstory. This is the origin of what is going to turn out to be a, a haunted house story. Right. Blackwood dives heavily into Pender's experience of of taking the liquid solution of cannabis here. And, you know, we see the kind of literary theory of relativity I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, but first, the basic experience that Pender has is that he took way too much of this uh, marijuana tincture it knocked him out, and then he woke up and experienced both hysterical laughter and an anxiety attack. And this is not the most comfortable experience in the world. Uh, Dr. Silence sympathizes with these experiences and even finds humor in them, as he too has experienced this sort of thing from uh, taking drugs himself. He says he too has experienced the hashish laughter, uh, and, it, and it's pretty great. Um, but one of the things that Pender describes, as you as you said Glenn, is these experience of time shifts. And subjectively speaking, Pender feels that it takes him an inordinately long time to get dressed and walk down the stairs to his office. And here's Silence responds that an experimental dose radically alters the scale of time and space sometimes. I don't want to make too much of this, but it, it's clear to me at this point that Blackwood, as a writer, as a uh, man engaged with the cultural currents of his time, is really deeply interested in the makeup of time and space and how subjective experiences shape our reality. These are hot topics in physics as he's writing this story. This you know, was published in 1908. Uh, Einstein publishes the general theory of relativity his paper on that in, in like 1915. So this is clearly part of the uh, culture, the discourse around physics that's leading up to this paper being written. But, you know, the sort of uh, anxiety, the laughter, the, you know, we'll see synesthesia in a little bit. These are sort of the typical effects of having taken weight too much marijuana, <laughs> of just being an overdose, as Dr. Silence calls it. Um, and we're going to see more of kind of this reefer madness experience 
of the drug pop up in just a moment. You know, and that really comes through in in how Pender feels like someone is controlling his thoughts and directing his actions in something evil. By opening up his mind, he's opened him, himself up to a spiritual attack, and you know that is uh, that is the fear of of the drug of marijuana at this time in history. Right. This is clearly a cautionary tale, but I'm not clear on what we're being cautioned against here, if it's actually uh, on using marijuana or on living in haunted houses. I mean, you know. (laughs) Yeah, John John Silence is a little concerned about both, but ultimately not very concerned about either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. Well, Silence refers to this this person, this, this woman, this evil woman as a dark power. And Pender now is going to describe what it was like living in the house now that this dark power has the ability to attack him now that his his vibrations are off. His vibrations are making him susceptible to this. One of the things we learn here is that Pender doesn't write his stories down physically. He dictates them to a stenographer, which is a process that definitely would not work for me as a writer. But in this case, it means that Pender thinks that he's dictating lighthearted comedies. But the stenographer keeps looking at him with this like fairly disturbed glance, but you know, as he's dictating his stories and. When Pender reads back his own material later on that day, you know, reads it off the page, he finds that, in fact, it is quite disturbing. There's there's humor in it, but it's it's a dark, almost wicked humor, right? It's not funny. And then there is the presence. Uh, we've already heard from Mrs. Pender how her husband opened doors and set out chairs for some sort of invisible person. And Pender describes how he felt compelled to care for this person, even to attend to her more than to his wife. This is one of these lines here that really shows us what his relationship with his wife is like, shows us how much he loves his wife and is worried about her. And when he's under the influence of the drug, he can even catch glimpses of this woman's face. But... As Dr. Silas has already said several times in this narrative, I mean, fewer times than we've made clear, the prognosis here, for for Pender at least, the prognosis is good. Uh, It's the house that is haunted, not him. This dark power, this invisible, as Silas calls it, was always there, but the drug has simply exposed Pender to it. And and here we get a great explanation of this from Silas that I just want to read because it contains a a critique of Edwardian Christianity that I expect we're going to want to talk about in the discussion. You do not quite gather what I am driving at, and it is not to be expected that you should. For you, I I suppose, are the nominal Christian, with the nominal Christian's lofty standards of ethics and his utter ignorance of spiritual possibilities. Beyond a somewhat childish understanding of spiritual wickedness in high places, you probably have no conception of what is possible once you break down the slender gulf that is mercifully fixed between you and that outer world." And all of this is just to say that Dr. Silence knows how to deal with this haunting, or at least knows how to figure out what to attempt to deal with it. And so now we're about to enter part two of the story. But before we get there, I want to include one more detail here, which is that Pender and his wife have to vacate the house. But since they aren't rich, they have nowhere to 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 go. And so Silence offers them the use of an uninhabited but well-furnished house that he owns, and and he's going to let them use it for as long as this business takes. So again, this is all part of his charitable work of protecting middle-class people from the spiritual forces of evil. Yeah, in this section of the story, we really see the kind of Kierkegaardian philosophy come through. We already mentioned, you know, John Silence's Probably a reference to Johannes de Silentio, who was the, you know, pseudonymous author of Fear and Trembling. But this bit about no- nominal Christianity really reminded me of a uh, work that Kierkegaard wrote, I think, under his own name, if I'm not mistaken, called Training in Christianity. And that book is at times a screed against nominal Christianity, which is what we call cultural Christianity today. It's Christian in name only, basically. There's people who call themselves Christians, attend their local church, weddings, community events, whatever. It makes much more sense if you're living in the uh, you know 18th century and you don't really have a car. Uh, so the church is the main town uh, meeting place. And this kind of same thing is probably going on with Anglicanism in the early 20th century, where this is the main community center. And it doesn't really matter what you believe, but... That's where you get all of your community needs met. Um, we don't really live in a world like that anymore. And it's it's kind of hard to imagine how much that world has shifted. But 
Kierkegaard was very, very troubled by this uh, when he was writing Training in Christianity. And I think Algernon Blackwood has read this text, and I don't know if he's especially critical of this form of Christianity in the story, though clearly he is. He's more concerned about the ethical impacts of this sort of thought. You know, Kierkegaard's uh, critique is really the hypocrisy, is really concerned with the hypocrisy of living a life that's more dictated and influenced by cultural norms than by theology or even Christ's teachings. Uh, And I think Algernon Blackwood here is concerned about the limitations of this ethical system that kind of keeps people from living a fuller life or experiencing what is actually going on in the world. Regardless of that, it appears as though John Silence has about much use for this kind of Christianity or ethical system as he does for the systems of divination and geomancy that we see early in the story. So one of the things we ha- we will have to think about is what sort of beliefs uh, or commitments that John Silence actually has in our discussion. And this is all really put up against in the text, uh, again, with John Silence's true sense of charity here. I mean, it's kind of amazing what he's doing for this couple who would otherwise be dismissed by other doctors or priests or whomever who would have to live in this haunted house and be subject to the attacks of it. Uh, so quite a lot going on here. Um, but I but I think the, the main point here, though it's clear to me now that Blackwood has read Kierkegaard, uh, is that John Silence is a character who is trying to live without the limitations of systems, but is still compelled to do what is good and right. Right, he's kind of got one foot in both worlds here, and 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 we can actually see that maybe in a, in a, a lot of different ways. But one of the things that's going on here, right, is that he's looking at these these cultural Christians, as you described it, and seeing that they have some of the values of Christianity and, and nominal Christianity as a part of their life, but they have not internalized any of the spiritual cosmology that you can learn there, because we are now living in 1908 in a, the society, in the culture, in the cosmology that the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, and the industrial revolution have built, which have divorced us from uh, treating spirituality or, or you know a spiritual world a psychical world maybe is the word that we should use here as something that's real and he is trying to be a rational scientific person while still acknowledging that that's real and trying to make sense of that and that's one of the ways he's got you know a foot in two different worlds there are other ways where he's he's standing kind of striding between boundaries here and it's a really impressive feat that blackwood has has done here but that is the end of part one so Let's go fight a ghost. So the house is now uninhabited and all but two of the rooms have been locked up so that the the battle will be contained. More importantly, though, Dr. Silence has brought some allies to help him. And these are the cat smoke and the dog flame, who are great friends with each other. Uh, We'll get more on that in a moment. And they're here because Dr. Silence believes that animals have access to different parts of reality than humans do, and they're going to be able to help them out because of that. And I just want to read what Blackwood writes here. Cats, in particular, were almost continuously conscious of a larger field of vision, too detailed even for a photographic camera, and quite beyond the reach of normal human organs. He had further observed that while dogs were usually terrified in the presence of such phenomena, cats, on the other hand, were soothed and satisfied. They welcomed manifestations as something belonging peculiarly to their own region. And it's hard here not to think again of From Beyond, right? Where Lovecraft specifically invokes cats and dogs in this capacity, and of course has a lot to say about human organs. And I do want to be clear here before we move on that Blackwood has a lot to say about these animals. It's, I think, a fairly significant part of the story, and it's a significant part of Dr. Silence's character. So, Let's start with Smoke. And again, I'm just going to read the passage because I I love it. Smoke had lived with him since kittenhood, a kittenhood of perplexing sweetness and audacious mischief. Wayward it was and fanciful, ever playing its own mysterious games in the corners of the room, jumping at invisible things, leaping sideways into the air and falling with tiny moccasined feet onto another part of the carpet. Yet with an air of dignified earnestness, which showed that the performance was necessary to its own well-being and not done merely to impress a stupid human audience. Smoke described its temperament as well as its appearance, its movements, its individuality, its posing as a little furry mass of concealed mysteries, its elfin-like elusiveness, all combined to justify its name. And a subtle painter might have pictured it as a wisp of floating smoke, 
the fire below betraying itself at two points only, the glowing eyes. And this whole description just reads like a love letter to cats, uh, which is a phrase I never thought I would say. I don't know if that's a band name. Probably not. Maybe, I don't know, maybe an album name. But I do think this passage is just phenomenal. And we're going to get a great description of the the dog Flame, too, who's a, a, a collie. Flame had come to him quite young, straight from the shepherd, with the air of the hills yet in his nostrils, and was then little more than skin and bones and teeth. Only its master could touch it, for it ignored strangers and despised their paddings, when any dared to pat it. There was something patriarchal about the old beast. He was in earnest and went through life with tremendous energy and big things in view, as though he had the reputation of his whole race to uphold. And to watch him fighting against odds was to understand why he was terrible. And Blackwood goes on here to to talk about the relationship between smoke and flame about how they are great friends even though they are different species and flame is much older than smoke they play with each other or really we should say smoke plays with flame and flame the the older collie the older dog tolerates it but maybe also secretly loves it a little bit and we'll have to say that i was not expecting that the action climax of this story was going to involve a, a cat and a dog fighting a ghost I really loved these descriptions of smoke and flame as genuine personalities here. Yeah, this whole section is really full of descriptive beauty and great descriptive writing. Another part of the relationship between flame and smoke is that though they are different species, as you said, flame is almost smoke's father, I think, that's kind of indicated in the story. And so flame has a a paternal love for smoke, and that's why they're on this ghost hunt together because as mischievous as cats can be as much as they love evil uh flame isn't going to judge smoke too harshly for whatever smoke is going to end up doing in exposing the ghost of this house i do just want to read a brief passage here to kind of set the scene for this ghost hunt and i and i think it's an example of blackwood's great descriptive writing John Silence is sitting and watching the cat and dog kind of nose around the room Blackwood writes this. He observed them closely. The fog was thick in the air, and the tobacco smoke from his pipe added to its density. The furniture at the far end stood mistily, and where the shadows congregated in hanging clouds under the ceiling, it was difficult to see clearly at all. The lamplight only reached to a level of five feet from the floor, above which came layers of comparative darkness so that the room appeared twice as lofty as it actually was. By means of the lamp and fire, however, the carpet was everywhere clearly visible. I just love this. I mean, we've been not really talking about the setting of this story all that much, but it's really foggy, and uh, this fog has its almost own personality in the story. It follows John into the house. It leaks in through the windows and cracks and crevices. And I, I just thought that that particular passage was a really good example of some of the descriptive writing and place setting that Blackwood is doing. And I, and I really, really loved it. Yeah, we could really almost read this entire story out loud, right? Blackwood just is a master wordsmith here. The, the fog was something that really jumped out to me in this story as as well. And it was hard for me to tell if this is just a feature of the age, right? We think of London fog as being a, a thing, as as, as fog, fog, we think of fog as being, uh, you know, an attribute of London. And it turns out, actually, this was just smog. It was actually air pollution from industrialization that, in fact, just isn't there anymore. I mean, you can see fog in London if you go there now, but it's not like this, like, thick pea green thing that we get in you know stories and, and you know in movies about Jack the Ripper and so on so I wasn't clear if that was just you know this is just what London is like and so it's just setting this the stage here with a, a reality effect or if there is something else going on with the the fog and its relationship with with silence here yeah that might be something we can pick up in the discussion I do want to comment about one more thing about this section here and it's that silence isn't just bringing his pets to the ghost hunt because they are better at perceiving this wider spectrum of reality and because they're different natures of, I don't know, chaotic neutrality and lawful goodness <laughs> uh, are going to help him out. Um, but this is really because Silence himself can't feel the dark power or evil presence in the house. He is not enough. His clairvoyance is not enough to have it manifest to him in a meaningful way. So he needs these animals to help him out, to provide a sense of where the ghost is, where it's haunting, and how he is going to have to respond to it. 
But I mean, I can't emphasize this enough. I was just not expecting this when I was reading this story. And the next big chunk of the story is smoke and flame coming up. So let's get to the smoke and flame part of the story. Yeah, right. I mean, I even said, before, you know, as we got going into the next segment that we're going to go fight a ghost and then uh, decided to pause and read descriptions of kittens. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, but that's actually what the experience of reading this story is. But, but now we really are going to go fight a ghost. So as I said, this is a, a big part of the, the story here. It, it's 15 pages or so, but since it's action, I think we can try to move through it a, a little more quickly. I mean, we, we took a long time on just the first two pages of this story, so we'll try to pick up the pace here a little bit. So after a tour of the house, they all settle into the study. Silence is going to sit in a chair and read until something happens while Smoke and Flame will, will, you know, just do what they do. As usual, Smoke wants to play, but Flame is already becoming afraid in the house and he, he won't budge. And Flame does eventually fall asleep and, and so does Dr. Silence in his chair. But he's awoken late at night by the cat Smoke, who, who's actively trying to wake him up. Because something is going on. Something is afoot here. But we do need to keep in mind here that this ghost doesn't have any physical power, only a psychical power. And it only has that psychical power over Pender because he messed up his psyche with with cannabis, right? And so when Silence wakes up, he doesn't experience anything directly. He can only observe the animals who are experiencing it directly. And Flame is afraid here. But Smoke is excited by the presence of someone in the study and is even maybe playing with that person the way that cats get really excited about rubbing on legs. You know, we've all we've all seen that. Uh, but this is not a conflict, not yet, at least. Dr. Silence is merely here making observations. He's even writing them down in a book because he expects to be at this task of figuring out what the dark power is for even another day or so. And he even plans on sleeping in a, a proper bed here. And in fact, he's just about to do that when smoke tenses up and there's a wind outside and then a presence in the hallway. And that presence, that turns out to be not just a single psychic intruder, but several. Yeah, things are about to get real wonky for John Silence here in this house. And Glenn, you uh, briefly touched on kind of the tour of the house. This is a a really good section of the story as well. Um, But this whole bit here is really just animals playing. I don't have too much to say about other than I was reading this in a bar the other night. And and boy, it was real nice to have a beer while reading about this animal (laughs) adventure. This is how I recommend reading this story. I'm not sure if it really bogs down this story, you know, all this engagement with the with the new characters that are nonverbal and really are communicating through body language. Um, but the story certainly takes a reader in a direction that would have been hard for me to predict from the first chapter. And I'm torn between finding it really fun and refreshing or feeling a little betrayed because we meet Dr. Silence in his study, and there's no mention of animals. Um, but I think at the end, I kind of fall on the side of it being a little refreshing as a reader. This really just pulled the rug out from under me and my expectations of this story. Well, wait till we do the Blackwood novella about a man who communicates with the trees. <laughs> then, <laughs> then we'll come back to this one and see how you feel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, what follows here now is that the climax of the, the battle. It's a, a psychic battle between Dr. Silence and his cat and a dog on the one side, and this dark power, this great person personality on the other side. And while there is some activity, mostly this is a battle of will, a battle of of, of spirit. Uh, The animals have their own defensive battles, and and, and so does silence. And Blackwood describes silence's battle as a matter of, of spiritual alchemy. And this is something that Silence is learning as he goes. He's learning how to do this while the battle itself is is raging. And what he's learned is that force is one and the, the same. It is only the motive behind it that makes it good or evil. There's a bit of a bit of Hamlet here, I think. And because Dr. Silence's motives were entirely unselfish, he was able, and, and here I'm gonna I'm gonna quote, he was he was able to absorb these evil radiations into himself and change them magically into his own good purposes. And since his motive was pure and his soul fearless, they could not work harm in him. But this is just the defensive part of the battle. Once Silence is standing on firm spiritual ground, he now has to go on the offensive if he's going to actually defeat the the ghost here. And here he uses music. It's it's singing, though Blackwood describes this in terms of vibratory activities. There are also sigils and gestures and movements that Silence uses. It's This is all of his uh, occult knowledge here. And all of this together restores harmony to his soul and then restores harmony to the room around him. 
as well as to his companions, his friends, these animals who are in the room. And at this moment, smoke and flame are revived. Smoke's fur is full of electricity that gives off blue sparks when silence pets her. And while Flame is also revived, his spiritual battle has taken a real physical toll on him. It turns out that he was blinded during this this battle of of spiritual will here. Right. And Flame is, you know, an old dog. And as we said before, the reason why Silence has brought in Flame and Smoke is because of their relationship with one another. And we see Smoke kind of try to get Flame's energy back up. And it's it's a really cute little scene. I do want to emphasize something you said earlier uh, that that's really important to this section. And, and that's Silence's expression of the idea that power is just power. How it's used, who it's used by, that's what matters. And so his way of defeating this dark power is kind of to siphon all the power off the most evil entity in the room into himself and then you know, transform it alchemically was the word uh, you used the word in the text to overcome it. And this is really challenging for him. And it just goes to emphasize the lack of method that Dr. Silence has. He's learning as he's doing this. He's having these sorts of epiphanies as he's engaging in this battle. And he's able to take action, uh, not through the use of sort of a, a scientific method or of rational rigor, but of adapting on the spot. And it's a great example of, of what Blackwood is up to with this character in the story. Blackwood is also balancing a lot in this section. We have a ghost battle. We have animals going crazy, having their own battle. Uh, there's a number of concerns that Silence has on his mind as he's fighting this ghost. You know, what's going on with his animals? What's going on with him? Can he spiritually overcome this thing? The room is shifting in shapes and size. It's getting distorted. Um, but Blackwood has already introdu- introduced us in the passage I read to the sort of already sense of distortion that is in the room. And this is great great craft and technique. Blackwood is doing such a good job of keeping the action focus, the action of the story focused here because he's placed the action in one setting that he's already prepared us so well to be in. And he's also set Silence's character up so well through great characterization and great uh, you know, showing and not telling that we see Silence's actions entirely motivated by his character instead of by some external objective rational reality so you know we see this through silence's concern for his pet's well-being and his desire to improve the lives of the penders these are still on the forefront of his mind and are and kind of give him the uh, good nature he needs to overcome this dark power the specifics of it are great for this story but in general I found this a great approach to writing action in a story. And and these are lessons I'm going to take with me as a writer. Yeah, me too. And I can't wait to dig even deeper into all of the the craft when we get into the the discussion episode. But we have got to finish this episode up first. And we still have one scene to go. It is time for an epilogue. So now that the battle is over, Dr. Silence visits Pender at the home where he's staying. And he finds his condition completely improved. There is also the matter of the house itself, of course, which Silence says is going to have to be destroyed. Though I'll say I'm not sure I quite understand why, but again, maybe that's something we'll take up in the the discussion. And what this means, the destruction of the house that the Penders live in, what this means is that Pender and his wife are going to have to move permanently. But this is something Silence is going to help out with. He's going to help out with all of this. And we're we're left with the understanding that that Silence is actually going to buy the house that the Penders have been renting from whoever owns it. We don't know who that person is, uh, but he's going to buy it so that he can destroy it. And then it'll also help the Penders find a, a new place that they, they can rent. This is all part of his charitable occult detectiving here. But what we're really here for is the explanation for it all, the explanation for what was going on. Why was the house haunted to begin with, and who was the evil woman? So Dr. Silence has a secretary who's done some research into the house, and this secretary has found that a little over a century ago, there was a woman who lived there who had committed a series of heinous crimes 
and was then hanged for them in 1798. We don't really learn what those crimes were, but Silence explains that she used low-level magic and that this is why she is still haunting the, the house. Uh, there's an interesting note here about the house itself. It was not this house precisely that she lived in. It was actually an earlier house that stood on this site when it was still a rural area. And, and again, this had me thinking of the, the Sheridan Le Fanu haunted house story, an authentic narrative of a haunted house, which has basically this exact same mechanism that, like, you know, you should have looked at the property records before you moved in here. This house, you know, used to be something else and maybe it was haunted. Uh, I, in fact, there are so many little specificities here, little connections between those two stories. It's hard not to actually see this as actually kind of a, a take on on that. Uh, but finally, though, we come to the last point here, which is how. How is it possible for ghosts to be real? And Dr. Silence gives us an extended answer. And again, this is a passage I'm just going to read. He says, if you knew anything of magic, you would know that thought is dynamic and that it may call into existence forms and pictures that may well last for hundreds of years. For not far removed from the region of our human life is another region where float the waste and drift of all the centuries, the limbo of the shells of the dead, a densely populated region crammed with horror and abomination of all descriptions, and sometimes galvanized into active life again by the will of a trained manipulator, a mind versed in the practices of lower magic. That this woman understood its vile commerce, I am persuaded, and the forces she set going during her life have simply been accumulating ever since, and would have continued to do so had they not been drawn down upon yourself, and afterwards discharged through me. So there is an entire metaphysics here, as well as a helpful how-to guide for potential necromancers, I guess. I, I do hope that this will all come back in future John Silence stories, a bit about how this, this necromancy here works is something that we'll actually see. But... That, at this point, is is really it, except for one last detail. Dr. Silence brought Flame with him to visit the, the Penders, and as he is about to leave, Flame gets really, really excited. And it's because his sight has suddenly returned. And so it turns out to be a happy ending for everyone, after all. Yes, it sure is. It's a, a nice ending. Everything is wrapped up here, and so there's nothing really to discuss. And we just end the whole. The, we don't even need a discussion <laughs> episode. Everything's wrapped up. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. But this really is a very complete story, and and Blackwood does a very good job of tying up all the loose ends here. And as we've been talking about in the recap, there is still quite a bit worth discussing within the story, and and we're I'm going to save a lot of that for the discussion episode. So I think on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of A Physical Invasion, particularly if you read it and are and would like to quibble with uh, maybe, maybe some things we left out of the recap that you thought were important. There was a lot of pet stuff that we just didn't talk about. And if you'd like to support the show, uh, please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. We recently covered a story called The Visitors, which is by the Strugatsky brothers. A really fun first contact story where the aliens are coming to Earth. Uh, kind of a fun parody of archaeology and the nature of the profession. I love this story. It's made me want to read much more from the Strugatsky brothers uh, in my free time. I think you're going to love it. So check us out on Patreon.com and uh, support us and get access to the visitors and other bonus episodes and great bonus content like it. Yeah, I love the visitors. I mean, I think I would I would pitch this as Soviet X-Files episode is basically uh, what it is. And I would love to do. I hope we'll get to do more Strugatsky brothers at some point. Well, next time we'll be back with a discussion of this story. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.